Currently, the Welfare Conditionality Project Sanctuary Support and Behaviour Change. It's a five-year project, a collaboration of the, the six universities you see on the screen uh, with the, the, the sort of hub at the University of York. Um, what I want to do today is to focus in a little bit on some issues around migrants uh, and, and welfare conditionality in the UK. Um, I'll just um, start by saying a few words about the project. We're just past the midway point in the five-year project. The twin aims, as Carolyn said, are to consider both the ethics and the efficacy of welfare conditionality. Is it ever justifiable? In what circumstances? Um, and, and does it work? Because there's a massive shift within many welfare states, uh, not just in the UK, towards what, what you'll see uh, we call conduct conditionality, uh, where behavioural conditions uh, are required, uh, certain responsible behaviour or um, uh, a cessation of irresponsible behaviour on the part of benefit recipients is required in order for them to continue to receive benefits. The project's underpinned by three... Uh, uh, fieldwork with three sets of respondents. We have done semi-structured interviews with 49 key informants in the first year of the project, first 18 months. We are drawing towards the end of 24 focus groups with frontline welfare practitioners, the sort of street-level bureaucrats who um, um, interpret and implement this stuff. We've done, I think, 21 focus groups. There is a slight issue with that section of the project, and I'll talk to you about that if you're interested at the end. Um, and central to the project is a large qualitative repeat panel study with a diverse sample of 480 welfare recipients. So we are undertaking um, th uh, three waves of interviews. We've completed wave A, we're into wave B now, um, and we are exploring conditionality across a range of policy areas and domains. So it's not just the sort of activation literature in respect of um, social security benefits, it's with all these these groups here. And so we've, we've sampled uh, nine panels, uh, 53, 54 uh, groups of, of each of these nine groups, unemployed people, on parents, disabled people, universal credit claimants, homeless people, social tenants, individuals, families subject to antisocial behaviour orders, etc., offenders and migrants. Now, those groups don't neatly map onto each other. And we knew that when we put the bid in, and we had a rationale for that. What we're trying to do is to look at the way conditionality plays out in relation to each of these groups. So, for example, you might well be a migrant who's uh, subject to sort of JSA regime. Um, but what we see these is ways into people's lives. And some of the people we've interviewed a sort of subject to what we call an intersections of conditionality in various arenas of the lives. The locations are in, London, uh, are in England and Scotland are set out there, um, and essentially we're doing an England-Scotland comparative uh, um, study because in respect of things like homelessness, for example, different legislative frameworks are in place in relation to England and Scotland, and given the things that have gone on in Scotland since we started the project, we might see more difference between regimes in relation to Social Security as well. What I want to do today, then, is, 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 is basically three things. I want to sort of uh, talk to you about the way I've made sense of welfare conditionality uh, in relation to the migrants and migration in the UK. I just want to say a little bit about how we sampled people and how we, we sort of got the people that we thought would, would, would fit our sort of criteria 
um, and, and offer some preliminary findings from Wave A. Now at this juncture, I just want to say, we've got a group of 54 migrants uh, um, within the 480 um, uh, uh, nine panel study. Uh, this is based on analysis of 28 of those interviews. We haven't finished the analysis. I've spoken to the other researchers dealing with the, the remaining interviews, um, and I don't expect to be surprised from this point on. Um, it's ongoing. So this is preliminary findings. We will be launching our sort of um, final preliminary findings in April next year uh, at an event in London. I then want to just draw some sort of conclusions and thoughts together about where we're at in relation to conditionality and migration. So, in terms of the sort of wider contexts around debate around welfare and immigration, um, I've sort of put on this slide um, five areas, five elements that I think are particularly um, uh, are pertinent when we're considering issues of welfare conditionality. We've certainly got a hostile immigration policy environment, um, the separation of asylum support, the introduction of a migration cap, points-based systems for third-country nationals, the development of, of, of what Charlotte O'Brien's called an activation plus regime for EA migrants, where there are additional uh, requirements placed upon them um, in relation to uh, accessing welfare benefits from uh, July 2014. I'm of the view that what I call social legal status, the complex theory of entitlement of rights to residence, work and welfare that emerge from immigration policy and immigration status uh, is, is also an important area when we're considering conditionality uh, in relation to migrants in the UK. Um, there are issues that we're not dealing with in this project. For example, no recourse to public funds and issues of, of destitution uh, caused by, um, you know, uh, for failed asylum seekers and irregular migrants. That said, I think some of the, 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 the policies uh, within the, the, the current welfare regime do sort of promote near destitution for many people. Well, no, for some people. There are also debates around uh, the extent to which the, the UK welfare state is racist. The sort of stuff that Gary Craig has talked about, the cunning, unprincipled and loathsome paper and other things he's done around the intersection between immigration policy setting an exclusive tone and how this plays through in respect of um, street-level imp implementation. So how if issues of difference and diversity, ethnic difference, uh, may, be sort of, may um, um, influence those who implement policies, decisions in relation to sanction, support, um, etc. And one of the key backdrops as well for me, and something that my work's been about since my PhD, effectively the, the key thing that I'm into, is this argument about the reconfiguration of, of social citizenship. The last government promised personalised, intensified and extended conditionality. Um, and I think that they are delivering it. But the last government built upon... Uh, the new Labour years uh, and also uh, uh, the sort of Conservative governments of the late 1990s. And one argument that we're making uh, in a paper around universal credit is the notion of ubiquitous conditionality and the, the sort of emergence of a sanctioning state. Um, and all this, of course, is taking place against the backdrop of austerity and welfare retrenchment. Um, a reduction in the level of support that may be available for people 
uh, informally through uh, um, NGOs, etc., as, 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 as the withdrawal of, of support uh, increases, and an emergence of what Paul Hoggart's called the popular politics of resentment, in which people um, sort of set up hierarchies in which they legitimate their claim and, and, and seek to exclude the claims of others. Um, I think that's a really nice paper if you haven't read it. Um, it's something uh, I, I dealt with in my PhD, um, but this politics of resentment idea is, is uh, a nice uh, piece of work, I think. So bringing all that together, migrants and conditionality for me, operates, as I said in the, the, uh, um, the abstract for the seminar, is important in two senses. In the broad sense, in the way in which immigration and welfare policies intersect to establish and structure diverse rights and responsibilities, and I think that's important, uh, of different migrant groups in the UK. And also conditionality in a narrower sense, in the sense of behavioural conditionality the ways in which migrants might experience uh, behavioural conditionality in their interactions with welfare agencies that implement interventions that combine elements of sanction and support. And within the project, we have defined conditionality as, as, as being about uh, uh, welfare policies that involve both sanction and support. Um, there has been a lot of focus and attention on the sanction side, and rightly so because we've seen it ramp up uh, and intensify in, in, in very recent years. But the other side of it is supposed to be support for people, targeted support for people with particular issues, particular vulnerabilities, um, um, to enable them uh, uh, to deal with some personal issues they might be dealing with in respect of, of their own behaviour, or enhance their opportunities um, um, to take up paid work um, in, in the, in, in the, the labour market. In relation to uh, migrants as well, within legislation there are also aspects of what we might see as cultural or financial conditionality. So language, language requirements, for example. We could even talk about citizenship tests which require migrants to know more about kings and queens, etc. and God knows what. Um, I've never taken one of those tests, but I'm certain I would fail it. Um, and also minimum earnings requirements that are part and parcel of uh, um, uh, legislation now in respect of bringing uh, um, spouse or family members um, uh, to the UK. So those are three elements that, that, that might be particularly relevant to, to sort of migrants. When we think about welfare conditionality, obviously there's, there's quite a debate. And I, I think, was guilty in my early years of not pinning it down. I've always been interested in what I call behavioural conditionality, what we now call conduct conditionality in our project. But Clausen and Clegg, and, and a paper that came out of the, the, the team, um, identify uh, these kinds of, these kinds of uh, eligibility criteria. So entitlement to conditional membership of a defined category of support, conditions of circumstance, so eligibility to include or exclude on the basis of circumstance, things like means testing, etc., or um, uh, uh, um, uh, what have you, um, conditions of conduct that demand particular patterns of behaviour. And one of the, the arguments uh, that I make, um, not everybody in the team 
shares this, this view, but I think one of the arguments that I particularly have made over the years is that we've seen a, a significant qualitative shift in, in the way that social citizenship and entitlement, um, the social rights of citizenship, uh, are delivered within welfare states. And, and Alan Deacon has called this a principle of conditionality, uh, as set out on the slide there. And a host of commentators, not just academic ones, the DWP as well in 2008, are quite clear that this shift towards uh, a behavioural, this conduct-focused uh, um, um, welfare state is about using uh, welfare in an instrumental way to change behaviour. Hence the, um, the, the title of the project, Sanction, Support and Behaviour Change. Um, so... That's the sort of the backdrop um, stuff. I better slow down, I'll be finished in ten minutes. Um, just a little bit now uh, to, about the sub-panel of, of, of migrants, the sub-sample within our repeat qualitative longitudinal study. We sat down, we're interested in, in, in conditionality. So how does it work then for migrants? And what, what we did, we started from where we were at, or where I was at effectively, within, within the, the team. And this comes from a piece of work that I did with um, Joseph Rowntree Foundation about forced labour uh, and, migration, and migration status. Now, this is just my view on it, my take on it. I'm sure some people in this room have cut the cake in different ways. But one of the first things you've got to do is try and make sense of all the myriad of different regimes, etc. And what we've got here, we've got basically uh, a diagram that simply looks at, I suppose, routes into the UK. We're dealing with the UK only, don't forget. So we've got labour migrants, we've got forced migrants who come through the asylum seeking refugee system. We have got students, people who come to study, and family joiners, descendant uh, and ascendant relatives who might come. We can then further differentiate the rights uh, uh, that accrue to these uh, five broad categories uh, in a number of ways, and I'm sure this will be, you know, everybody knows this in the room, European migrants, EEA migrants, EU migrants, what have you, third country nationals, those from the under borders of Europe, different rules, different regulations. Um, we can see within asylum seekers and refugees different kinds of, of social legal status that, that uh, accrue different sets of rights uh, and responsibilities. When we first did this up here, there was A8 and A2 under EA migrants because of the transitional rules. Now, what effectively this did was, well, who's going to be actually subject to conditionality in the, in the narrower sense within the, uh, the UK welfare state? We're interested in debates for this particular group in the broader sense, but who's going to have interactions with um, uh, welfare services? And it's not going to be irregular migrants or refused asylum seekers. So we're not dealing with real issues around, you know, no recourse to public funds. We're looking at the way in which migration, particularly those who have got uh, leave to remain, various leaves to remain through the asylum system, or who have come and joined from the European Union, and how the conditionality plays out in, in, in their lives. Um, that's the way in we've chosen which brings us to a sort of sampling criteria that's this we defined a migrant very broadly 
in terms of the um, the UN uh, uh, definition. Um, I'm, I'm aware of work that people in this room have done around the, the, the clumsy term and notion of migrate, migrant, what is a migrant, etc. Uh, we, we looked at uh, uh, Anderson and Blinder's paper about who counts as a migrant and what have you. Um, so we start from that position. We then move to, well, we're interested in adults, adults who are eligible for social welfare benefits in the UK. And this leads us to these two groups, um, as I said. And then we wanted people who had current experience of welfare benefits, services or interventions in which conduct conditionality, behavioural stuff, was an element at wave A of QA, of QL. So people who were experiencing the conditional welfare state in terms of, of uh, conditions of conduct when we first sampled. Now, of course, we're doing a qualitative longitudinal study, so some people may move in and out of these uh, categories. And the reason those little circles overlapped was, and I should have said this earlier, was because, you know, these are not fixed statuses. People move into different um, uh, um, orbits um, at different times, dependent on, on a number of, of, of circumstances. And, and you'll see one young woman who, who came as a student, um, who's a third country national, who we've included in the sample. And I'll, I'll, hopefully you'll see why in a, in a minute. But what we've got then are these groups and somebody who had not been granted British citizenship. So we didn't want what we might see as to talk to um, in a British... <coughs> Black and minority ethnic British citizens, yeah? As I said on the earlier slide, issues of race, difference of ethnicity are bound up in the backdrop of all this. But we were particularly interested in, are there any issues that, that, that might um, occur for migrants, uh, newly arrived migrants, who haven't yet um, um, settled, essentially, uh, and received uh, citizenship status? This is the sort of slide on the sample. I'm sorry it's like this. I tried to make a fancy table yesterday, last night actually, and it was bloody awful because I don't know how to put whatever it is into um, into uh, whatever it was using. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not technically very good. But what we've got is a total of 54 uh, uh, sample within the sampled group of migrants. We've got 28 men and 26 women. We wanted broadly um, uh, uh, gender equality within the sample. The main category we've got are 31 uh, European Economic Area migrants, 21 third country nationals and two to be confirmed. We've got a very big sample of 480 people. We've had teams going out and we've got a, a checklist which runs to pages at the end of each interview which has got all sorts of stuff on it. And from, from what we can see at the moment, I'm not sure where they fit. We're going back to, to find out. By sub-sample, uh, within that, we've got uh, 21A8, 6A2 and four other in the EEA group, third country national, 12 refugee status, two discretionary leave to remain, one... Um, oh, ILR. Indefinite, thank you. Indefinite leave to remain and one other. Uh, again, we're having a debate about uh, what this, how we classify this person. You'll see this person shortly on a, a qualitative data slide. Um, we've got additionally, within the sample of 480, another 17 
who appear to have self-identified as migrants, meet our sampling criteria as a migrant, but were interviewed as, uh, through other routes, so as a lone parent, as a social tenant, etc. So we, we're currently in the, the, the phase of exploring whether we need to be paying a lot of attention to those people, and, and we've got, I've got someone trying to pull them out and see what they, they tell us um, as well. So, that's the backdrop. This is sort of preliminary findings from Wave A. And what I want to do um, is, is present you with three sort of status stories. Um, highlight language issues. Look at this question of discrimination and racism and the implementation of, of uh, uh, conditionality. The idea of advisors, job coaches, etc. making racially informed discriminatory decisions. I want to say a little bit about the support that, that the migrants uh, are receiving um, and, and something about sanctions and ask this question about behaviour change. Now, the behaviour change element from Wave A is limited because if you're doing a qualitative longitudinal study, as you know, you need a start point. And we, 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 the start point is when we interview them. And what we're trying to do is see how... Conditional uh, conduct conditionality may or may not change behaviour for certain people in certain circumstances over the uh, the period of the three interviews. We're interviewing every person um, uh, uh, three times in a two-year period with a minimum uh, uh, distance between interviews A and B of nine months and a maximum of 13 months. Originally, we were going to do... Uh, not months, 12 months, 24 months. It's more messy than that because of the size of the sample. So we've had to bring in the 9 to 13 thing, but no less than 9 months, which should give us a long enough period over three interviews to consider the effect of all this stuff uh, in people's lives uh, and whether it does um, support people into work, etc. So those are the things I want to discuss. Now then, this is uh, the first data story. Now, what I've tried to do with the data, which you can read while I'm talking, is to give you some examples of, of um, the kinds of issues that are in the sample. Uh, and I'm very pleased about that, because until two weeks ago, I hadn't looked at this data, because we were busy with other stuff. If it wasn't there, I'd be mighty upset, yeah? Um, but this young lady is a Polish um, uh, young woman who uh, lives, in the, uh, lives in the UK. Uh, she's a lone parent who first came to study as a student uh, when she was 18. She started off working as a nanny, and then she moved into a sort of zero-hours contract as a cleaner, and then she got into uh, a UK university to study. And it's a particularly good example, this, this case, of the problems that are occurring for some uh, European migrants, European Union migrants, following the additional requirements and the extra restrictions that are, are part and parcel of, uh, of policy in respect to uh, European nationals, AA nationals. Um, you can read essentially what happened. She went on a university degree and she did a 12 month uh, secondment, not so, internship in the USA. And that broke a period of continuous residence of five years that was required to access benefits. And she's had all sorts of problems since then. And these were compounded um, by the fact that um, 
she's become a lone mother and she's been poorly advised by benefits uh, advisors and although you've only got one case here there are plenty of cases where people are getting the wrong advice um, they, she, was, she had problems in her pregnancy as it says they said oh you shouldn't be on job seekers you should be on ESA so she said okay I'll go on ESA lo and behold you're not eligible for ESA uh, and then they counted her as a new claimant um, so she was effectively left without any benefits um, eviction is a very real possibility for her um, interestingly we asked about ethics at the end of this interview she's very clear that the UK has every right to stop freeloading polls as she calls them from coming to work in the UK but she said you know I'm going to be evicted because I can't access any, any benefits. She's been denied housing benefit under the new rules. Um, and she's got a young daughter and she's worried. She's gone into arrears because she was wrongly advised to claim ESA uh, and they suspended a JSA for that period. So there's a knock-on effect there. Um, and this is the key to it for me. She's been here since she was 18. All her working life as an adult has been in the UK. She wants to make a claim against a contribution. And she even says in the interview, I'm sure if I spoke to Mr Cameron or the Queen, which I thought was quite interesting, you know, the way that, that, that she had this vision of British justice almost residing with the government and the Queen. Um, I'm sure they say, oh, we'll find a job for you and you can have benefits. The other thing is, she doesn't want to be on benefits. She very much sees it as, as she's got to get work. But she's got a very young daughter at present. So their status and restriction uh, the status playing out in a EA migrant um, flat. We've got a, a third country national in transition and I'm sure many of you who've done stuff around asylum support will recognise this long term issue of transition from the asylum uh, system, what used to be the NAS system UKBA, what's it called now? Has it changed its name? Asylum Again? Support. Sorry? Asylum support. Asylum support, I thought it had um, uh, from the separate asylum support system uh, uh, to the um, mainstream welfare system with a positive outcome uh, uh, to a refugee claim. She's interesting though because she came as a student. She fell pregnant to a British man who sort of supported her but he was married and he got sick of it after a few weeks and said on you go, why don't you claim asylum? So she did. Um, and, and she's now in a homeless hostel with a young baby. Um, uh, she's living off uh, uh, food parcels uh, from, from a food bank. And as she said, you know, under the asylum system, I used to get stuff for my baby. Now I go to the food bank, they give me tins of fruit and stuff. So in a way, she's a bit worse off even though she's a British citizen. Because of the way in which the system is, is shutting down its generosity, not just for migrants but for other people. Um, and essentially uh, she wants to work but she's not got a national insurance number. And this, this tickled me when, when she said that. Um, she, she'd been phoning them up and the advisor phoned up, in a, a voluntary advisor phoned up and said, if you need an NI number for a job, we'll get you on quick. If you want one for benefits, oh, I'll tell you what, could take nine to ten weeks. Now, she's stuck in a homeless hostel. She's had one um, uh, offer of accommodation. She went to see it, wanted it, it was unfurnished, she couldn't pay the rent, gone. Yeah? So she's in a pickle. Now, she doesn't really fit with our sampling criteria. And I had a, a think about this last week, and I thought, what should we do? Should we 
I thought, no, because what's going to happen to this, this woman in the next two years is a child is going to become two years old. And under the bill going through the House of uh, Parliament at the moment, lone parents will be subject to full conditionality when their child is two years old, if the bill goes through um, as it's intended at the moment. So we'll see maybe conditionality work into her life. Um, the third one, this is an interesting chat. It's always great when you get near the data if you haven't done all the interviews. And I might just say, I have done some interviews. I've done 15. We have a rule that everybody does some. Yeah? I didn't do this one. This guy, basically, was working for the British Army in Afghanistan. He was a mechanic. Um, and he got sort of privileged entry, entry in inverted commas. Uh, inverted commas. You'll all remember the, the discussion about if we leave these people behind, they'll be slaughtered. And eventually the government gave way and pulled some of them into the UK. But the way it seems to have worked in his life is interesting. Because essentially, you know, he says that I chose to save my life and save my family. And a bloke from the Home Office, he thinks it was the Home Office, he used to come every two weeks to the house that they'd given him, give him his money, sign here, off you go. Some sort of special status. I can't... This is the other. He says, I've got a letter. He's actually said in the interview, because the, the interviewer's going, well, have you got refugee status? Have you got... And he goes, I've told you, I've got this letter. And he's quite annoyed with it, you can tell. Um, and I don't understand the status. We'll have to dig a bit deeper. But three months later, it's, OK, no more money, get to the job centre. He thought he'd come to England and he'd get a job. He didn't realise they were unemployed people in, in, um, in England. He talks about hearing about a job. He's never worked. He's been here since 2006 or seven. He, he talks about finding out a job, washing up in a cafe in miles away in Scotland. And he, he goes on the bus to try and get this job and he doesn't get it. He is actively seeking work, yeah? Um, when we ask him about what does Job Centre Plus do for you, he says, well, it's a lot of rubbish. They give you some websites, they ask you address, nothing more. And this little quote, I see the job centre as a machine, a train or something. If you're late, you miss a stop. You can't explain why you're late, what's happened. We've got a system, anyone who's late, stop for two weeks. It's actually stopped for four weeks now for a first offence for missing an appointment. It was two weeks, but it's been uh, intensified. So you go there, do your stuff and come back. You go, you do whatever you're told to do, sign your paper and get out. Limited support. The work programme is even more scathing about. If you want to lose your time or something, go there. Uh, you got put onto the work programme, you sit there, go find a job, here's your computer, here's the, the job match stuff. Um, one hour, two hour, three hours. It's about showing that you are actively seeking work. It's not about enabling him into work. It hasn't worked so far. It doesn't look like it's going to work in the future. Now, within the, the, the manuscripts, the, the, uh, sorry, the transcripts, there are a couple of people, in fact, there are three people out of the 28 so far, who talk more positively about support. When they talk more positively about support, they talk about work programme providers. So only three of them. And what's interesting in the wider sample, we've got elements of, these are them that do the stick bit, they then refer you to the job centre, and when people get some support, they get it off good work programme providers. 
What's interesting is I've yet to come across many stories where that support, no matter how good it is, leads into work. Yeah, it's better. They're more interested in you. But it's a minority um, 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 sort of narrative. Moving on to the sort of more, more generic issues. Uh, uh, that, sorry, the, 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 the issues that are particular to migrants. Lack of English language skills was commonly identified as, as a significant issue. Um, a good number of respondents, I would say over half of them, see lack of language as a barrier to understanding the rules about conditionality and job search requirements. And access to translation services is a best variable, in many cases non-existent. And this is, is to do with uh, the rules that came in in July the 1st, 2014, which restricted routine access to interpreters to, for, for new JSA claimants. This was taken away in 2014, uh, and only those who were deemed to be vulnerable by their advisor, job coach person, um, uh, may um, uh, have access to this. Most people um, rely on friends. Uh, some people uh, are lucky to go to a job centre where there is a Slovak person employed if he's there on the day for this this, this uh, um I think this is a woman, this woman, um, uh, 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 it, it works. But others, reading through the transcripts, some of them have real trouble understanding some of our questions. Not all of them, it's not a generic issue. Some of them have got very good language skills. The young woman on status study A, story A, magnificent English, highly educated. But many people are sort of uh, sat there wondering what's going on. And there, there are examples, a couple of examples, where there's one example where a chap says, well, um, I asked them why I'd been sanctioned because I didn't understand what was happening. And they said, you've been sanctioned because you didn't understand. You'd be sanctioned. It's a sort of circular catch-22 argument. Now, they shouldn't be doing that. That's inappropriate. And they said, they sat him down and said, oh, if you do it like this next time, if you fill your universal job match sheet in like this, and bring it in, we won't sanction you. So they sort of coached him to learn the rules of the game to avoid a sanction. But he has been sanctioned for, for a month, no money for him and his family, and basically he didn't understand anything. I can tell you a funny story about that later. Um, not that, but it's not that funny, but it, it made me laugh at the time. Um, so language is, is, a, is a real issue, and, 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 and this loss of a uh, sort of right to interpreting services I think is, is significant this issue of discrimination and racism when I've done previous little small studies before this there's been two things going on sometimes advisors do not understand the rules so they're advising people wrongly not because they're racist they just don't understand the complex arrangements that are in place um, that said we've now got a system there's this, this chap here, who I think is a Roma man from, uh, um, I think he's from Poland. No, he's not Poland, he's another Slovak. Um, he talks dis directly about, you know, discrimination being embedded within the system. Um, and, that, you know, that's allowed, basically, that's routine. Um, but what you get from the other ones, the other people speaking, is this idea of... Um, it very much depends on who you get on the day, who's sat in front of you. You know, the street-level bureaucracy stuff around difference of interpretation. Um, now, 
everyone has this key worker advisor. Again, it's up to the advisor. I won't, I changed once or twice because I thought he's quite racist, so it depends. Some advisors are nice. They feel they're really interested in your situation. Um, uh, but some, they're just like rubbish. Uh, this, this woman thinks they've got targets because of this bloody work programme. She was not a happy uh, person. What's interesting, those who were talking about racism are almost, uh, well, are exclusively in the 28 uh, European migrants, not third country nationals. Because we've got a, a backdrop of exclusive language, of exclusive uh, uh, eligibility change, etc. Um, but more, the more generic issue, that's not just migrants, you know, it's, it's rubber stamping stuff in the job centre much of the time. It's a boring job, and as this fella says, you can tell straight away whether they're bothered, whether they're going to give you hassle, whether they're even interested. Um, so, although discrimination and racism may well be there on an individual level, uh, and there are aspects of it within the transcripts I've looked at, uh, the 28 transcripts. It's not a major issue. Um, it's part of it. The bigger issue for me is the sort of inherent discrimination that's part and parcel of the, the sort of nexus between uh, welfare, immigration, legislation. Um, support. We also ask people about the support they receive. And the overwhelming... Uh, um, uh, view is that the support is rubbish, if I'm being blunt. Um, we ask what do you think about that, what, what additional help did the job centres offer you, the work programme providers, you know, do everything myself, nothing additional we can help us with. You know, it's basically you're in the system, do what you're told and you'll be okay. It's up to you, I always thought, you know, at the job centre, oh, we'll get you a job, we've got a job, we can send you there. They'd enable people into work. Nothing like that. It's up to you to find the work. They're called a coach. They coach you nothing. It's just someone who is there to read your book. This is your job search book. Uh, what have you done in the last week? Sign you off and on you go. Um, it's like a police station. You know you're going for an investigation or something. Where people get most support, and again this will not come as a surprise to anyone in this room, is often through uh, voluntary non-governmental organisations um, uh, uh, where people go with their problems, where they might get somewhere when they get an advocate who can perhaps challenge some of the uh, uh, misunderstanding, etc. But even this has got its limits. This, this chap here is a, a, an interesting man. He's a Romanian man who's self-employed. He can't get housing benefit. Um, he can't access benefits because he can't prove he's been working. He's living in a caravan with his son, who's of school age. Uh, and the caravan got raided by the police, and he talked about his son being terrified. They were asleep. Please come in. Shift yourself. He's now got this caravan on a bit of private land, but his son is, like, wound up and worried, and it's really affected him because, you know, basically they're subject to a, a raid to move people on. Um, and, and basically he's relying on food banks. But the food bank, you know, charity has its limits. Um, this support, this is through an interpreter. This support has now stopped and, and they have told him they have to help other people and he should go back to Romania. That's not the first time I've heard that, in, in a, a, that kind of sentiment in a, a, a supposedly charitable um, setting. It's not um, uh, the dominant... Uh, 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 
dominant voice, but you know, I, I've seen certain things. I remember interviewing a chap once who was knocked down and was picked up by an ambulance man in Leeds and was told he'd take him to the hospital as long as he went to the home office and told him he was a legal migrant uh, after he'd been to hospital, which is an interesting thing to come from an ambulance driver. Anyway, that's an aside. Um, so the support, there are problems with the support that, that the migrants are receiving. Um, uh, the sanctions, sanctions are all over the show in the data, uh, including in the migrants. This is a, a typical case. Uh, um, I was late in the morning, I was running, did it, I forgot it, where's your job search? She goes into uh, a longer discussion about how she said to the bloke, um, well, look, I forgot it, I'm sorry, I'm here, I'm at my appointment, well, where's your book? I've got to see your job search. Uh, no, I'm going to sanction you. She had a raging barn. He calls the manager. Manager goes, "Oh, it's all right. Come back in two weeks. You'll be all right." She goes. She goes away thinking, "I've sorted it." Goes to the cash point. No money sanctioned, and she was fuming uh, about this. But that is routine within the system. That's not something that just migrants um, uh, um, face. There are some elements within there that are about the sort of additional issues. Uh, that, that, that certain migrants may face in relation to um, appointments and, and the sort of the backdrop of their lives, the, the countries of origin. And these two bits of data sort of illustrate those things. They explain, and they are very clear when they talk to us, that they have explained the reason why they were late and it was related to his, his partner dying, um, uh, the war in Sudan, and people go, oh, that's fine, yeah, sanction. Yeah, and there's no sort of discretion within the system. That said, there was one positive story, a positive discretion. Our man who had been a mechanic in, uh, for the army was late for five, uh, was five minutes late, or 15 minutes late rather, and the guy said to him, if you do it again, I'll sanction you, but I'll let you off this time. But that's the only positive story in the 28 um, where someone's been flexible in relation to sanctioning Behaviour change. Now, there's a question mark there because it might be early to think about behaviour change. We can talk about the impacts that this 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 behavioural conditionality is, is, is having on people, um, and and the way it changes behaviour is, is routinely negatively. The number of times people talked about a sanction causing them stress, where they've got to see doctors, where they just feel worried, oppressed. Uh, set upon where they fear going into the job centre or missing a work programme appointment or being late or anything because they know that'll mean they'll get no benefit for the next four weeks. It, it's, it's all over the 28 uh, um, interviews. Um, this fella is a, a European migrant. It made him paranoid. He became mentally ill to the point where he was moved from JSA onto ESA. Um, um, and this is quite an interesting thing he said uh, and now I'm on an ESA and I don't really feel like moving back to JSA ever again can you just remind us what those acronyms mean the, the, oh so I, I apologise ESA is Employment and Support Allowance yeah. Yeah, which is uh, um, replaced incapacity benefits I'm, I'm sorry I apologise JSA is Job Seekers Allowance now uh, just to put that into some context uh, the, the conditionality for, uh, uh, for JSA uh, is, is, is uh, stricter because on ESA you can be put in what's known as the support group where there is no conditionality at all and that's for people with um, 
major impairments and conditions who, who, who effectively will never uh, work again. Um, very much a minority. When you sign on for ESA, they do what's called a work capability assessment, where you go to a private company that assesses your capability to work. And what they do is they, they ask you a set of questions about functional ability, etc. And then on that basis, they either say, well, no, you're not disabled, you go on to JSA. Uh, we accept that you do have some impairment, so we're going to put you in what's called the work-related activity group, which is um, we accept you're impaired, but you've still got conditionality. You've got to attend training. You've got to attend uh, job search interviews, etc. Otherwise, you'll be sanctioned or we'll go in the, you go in the support group. I can say a little bit about how that's going in, in legislation at the moment uh, 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 later on. Um, this is about how effective this kind of stuff is. Because um, we say, did, you know, did this change your behaviour in relation to job search? And, and she say, no, it, it, it doesn't come from this. All that this does, really, um, uh, is it makes you suffer. As she said there, it just makes me suffer and get more antidepressants. You know, I'm not, I'm not cherry-picking the quotes here. There, there are probably 10 or 12 people who talk about the stress of it all, making them ill. Um, so perhaps limited um, uh, positive effect. What's interesting is this, this thing about, oh, all it makes me do is go away and do my own thing. For some people, that is effective behaviour change. You know, those who support this conditional welfare stuff uh, just want you off the welfare rolls. You know, uh, Lawrence Mead, we had him over from the US of A. And even he says, you know, we can see he's done um, quant stuff where you can see uh, the sort of uh, great restrictions in the American system lead to reducing numbers on welfare. But even he said, but the issue is we don't know where they go. And what this can do is force people away uh, from collectivised systems of welfare support um, and, and, and increase, uh, hardship, hardship, increase hardship and, and, and destitution. So to conclude, um, I suppose my conclusions are this. There are some, some migrant-specific issues that come out of this um, these, these interviews. Um, I want to stress these are, this is early analysis and we want to be guided by the evidence, uh, what comes out of the sort of the data. But I will be very surprised if I'm surprised by anything at this, from this juncture on. Um, there are some migrant-specific issues. This institutionalised welfare chauvinism that's embedded within the system. Breedl did a paper in 2015 about Scandinavian welfare states and... Um, Institutionalised welfare chauvinism, um, uh, a tendency within European states, uh, particularly in times of economic recession, um, where migrants face reduced or restricted entitlements uh, compared to other citizens. And in, in this context, she argues that at some point, harsher policies have been introduced and implemented more eagerly when the target group for activation has been immigrants. And I think we could probably see parallels in the, the British, uh, the UK system. The issue of discriminatory and racialised attitudes of advisers, it's an interesting one. It's more of a mixed picture. 
there are some examples of people being uh, overtly racist and some of the respondents tell us and believe them to be racist, particularly, as I said, uh, European respondents. <coughs> What's interesting for me in, in the broader context of the way conditionality is applied is we've been promised uh, uh, personalised, intensified, extended conditionality. We've also got within the, the work programme what's called a black box approach, whereby individuals, uh, individual advisors and companies can choose uh, a mix of sanction and support for different individuals as they see fit. There's great flexibility in there. And what this flexibility does, I would think, um, is perhaps it creates conditions where... Um, discriminatory or racialised attitude can actually be hidden quite easily because you can say, no, no, it's nothing to do with who it was, where she comes from, anything like that. I thought that this was the most effective approach for that person. There is a requirement now that those with English language um, uh, deficiencies um, um, need to undertake uh, uh, training. It was on one of the, the earlier slides. And if they don't improve the language within six months, they can be sanctioned. So there's, there's space for this, but I don't see this as a major issue at the moment. This is much more of an issue, the way it's become embedded within welfare. Um, language issues certainly compound uh, many migrants' problems in respect of uh, uh, welfare conditionality, and such issues appear to play a prominent role in inappropriate sanctions. Um, The more generic issues, the, the sort of sad thing is this. <coughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to swear, I'm uh, being recorded. Um, how can I put it? They're sort of doubly disadvantaged by these specific issues. They're not the only ones, though. You know, some disabled people have real problems making sense of the rules, etc. But this, this is uh, very much to the fore in much of the stuff we're looking at. Inadequate, inappropriate training, coupled with an intensified and expanded sanctions regime. There is certainly, we would argue, or I would argue at this juncture, a shift in what the job centre does. It's nothing to do with getting your job now. It's to do with disciplining you. Yeah? The universal credit interviews that we've that I analysed a couple of weeks back um, are shot through with this stuff. It's about making sure you've... Uh, done your job shirts for your specified hours and if you haven't, we'll sanction you. Um, the negative impacts of conditional welfare uh, 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 fear, stress, hardship and destitution. It does promote behaviour change. People worry themselves to death about it. Um, but none of them or very few of them uh, appear to think that it helps them or enables them into a job. There are one or two more positive stories and as we move through waves, A, Sorry, B and C, we'll perhaps be able to see some people move out of welfare and into work. So I can't really say much about that. But there does appear to be limited effectiveness in enhancing sustained employment opportunities uh, uh, from this sort of um, behavioural turn for, for, for social policy. But no one seems to bother about that because it plays well rhetorically. Um, and some people have argued there is a conditionality consensus across mainstream politics and with certain members of the public. This seminar is badged as being about well-being, so I thought I would put it on the end. I'll leave you to make your own minds up as to whether you think this is um, enhanced.
enhancing the well-being of those who are uh, those migrants who are um, subject to uh, these sorts of regimes. Thanks very much.